Hey everyone, on this episode of The Theology Pit, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans and just pretty much the introduction of it. I've said some weird things about it and now, um, yeah, I want to take a deeper look into it with you. You're falling into the Theology Pit. Theology You're falling in the Theology Pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit. I'm your host, Samson Kovach, coming back to you live. Of course, I'm your friendly neighborhood podcaster, theologian, and pastor. Maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I am your pastor online. Who knows? Um, it's it's always possible. You know, with my church, we live stream the services and it has been known to happen. Crazier things have happened. So, hey. I'm doing this new show with uh, Michael Patton from Credo House Ministries, and um, hopefully you've been tuning in and you've been able to check it out on YouTube plus on the podcast. And um, we were doing a series. Well, the series that's up right now is on his denial of Sola Scriptura in about a week, a week from Friday night. So Saturday at midnight, one week from Saturday at midnight, um, the new series will drop and I'll be leading that one. I'll be, um, we'll be discussing sola fide or faith alone, but he is talking, he's leading the discussion about, uh, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And I'm, we're, we're really proud of it. We're really excited for it. It's, it's starting to get into a groove. It's starting to get into a rhythm and we have a lot of stuff recorded for it and in the hopper. And so, you know, check it out, um, you know, either in, you know, Apple podcasts, uh, divergent theology or on YouTube, divergent theology, um, leave some, you know, questions that you have, any messages, anything that you, you know, want us to maybe talk about or clarify. And that's kind of what I'm doing with this podcast. I was trying to think of, you know, what am I going to do for this next podcast? I was trying to line some people up for interviews and denominations and things, but because of everything that's going on with COVID-19, people are extraordinarily busy. And a lot of them said, I might not be able to have anything, my, my schedule freed up to do something like this until like August. So fair enough. I completely understand that, you know, when you just kind of spring something like this on people. So, um, you know, it's like, I have a list of topics here, uh, that my wife and I were talking about. And one of them is on social issues and looking at things like, um, homosexuality and tribalism and, you know, what's going on with the protests and, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 thing and should you wear a mask? Shouldn't you wear a mask? How should you do church? One of the things that I do is, um, monthly, I am in a meeting with local pastors in my area and we just, we kind of talk about what's going on with our churches and, you know, what we're doing about it. And the whole COVID response has been, uh, dominating it, a, a lot of the conversation. But I thought, you know what, the social issues, I think that's a, a good one to jump into, but I want us to understand how we're looking at Romans 1 and 2 to really get into the social issues thing. Now, if you've been watching the Divergent Theology uh, videos or listening to the podcast, um, I threw Michael for a loop in some of the stuff. It was, it, was, uh, it was so great. It's so great working with Michael because he is such a, uh, a great thinker and a great teacher, but 
it's funny how he is always genuinely surprised that some, like, I don't agree with him on stuff. Like he, we, we decided to do the show Divergent Theology because we both have such different backgrounds theologically. And he is genuinely surprised that I have a different theological opinion. Now, one of the, um, theological opinions that, uh, came about that, you know, uh, he sort of said, man, you're really like, you know, diverging all over the place on, um, was when it came to my understanding of Romans, as I was trying to explain, because he was going through Romans one and especially looking at Romans, uh, one And he was using that as an example of how, you know, everybody, uh, can see the, the, the glory of God. Everybody knows that a God exists by looking up into the heavens. And I was pushing back on that saying, no, that's, I, I, I don't think that that's what that's about. To be honest, I don't think that that is what, um, the, uh, the message that Paul is putting forth. I don't think that he is writing Romans with the idea that, 2,000 years later, people are going to be looking at it. I, I, I really don't. I don't think that any of Paul's letters uh, take that you know kind of approach, but especially Romans, because and, and Romans is one of the one of the later letters. And and the reason why I'm saying this is because when they thought that Christ's return was going to be imminent, like at any moment Christ could return. Okay. Why, why are you thinking that, okay, Christ is going to return any moment, probably in our lifetime. I mean, that's generally, you know, what, what was being thought. Um, but he, he didn't return in, in, you know, the way that they thought he didn't, he didn't, you know, return at that time. And things started being written down necessarily because of that people, you know, you had people dying off, new generations are coming up, the apostles are getting older um, people are writing stuff down. Uh, Luke's gospel is, you know, and, and acts, they're both written to be a reliable historical account. That was the point of them. And it just seemed that it was being written out of, you know, necessity and out of utility. Uh, and, and, and that's why the new Testament was constructed. It was, okay, you know what? Maybe Christ isn't going to return until after we die off. Or the church is a little bit bigger. I don't know. But I don't think that the apostles are writing, if they know that they're writing scripture. And I I, I, I want to say by the time Paul's writing Romans, he has somewhat of an understanding that um, what he is writing in general is being looked at, you know, as scripture or at least as, you know, a, a companion to scripture, you know, whether or not he, he knew that I, I don't, I, it, w- it would be weird for someone to say, whatever I'm writing down, this is God's word. I am writing down God's word and then, um, not write it themselves. Now in, in Romans, Paul uses an amanuensis and that's like a, a fancy scribe, you know, someone that would write, write it down for him. And so, you know, would you want that other person as the medium in between? If you, if you're saying, Hey, I think I have a direct path to God here, you know, in what I'm, um, you know, writing down, 
well, why are you letting someone else get in the way? So, you know, I, I so I don't think that, you know, Paul's like completely 100% with it be, but, but he's, he certainly knows that it's being viewed as extremely important, you know, if not something like, like, you know, you think of like the, uh, the, the Talmud that the uh, Jewish people have right now um, that helps them to understand the old Testament and, you know, they live by it. And maybe it was, maybe it was to be something like that. Maybe it was something that, Hey, this, this will, this will help you understand the old Testament because this will help you understand where Christ fits in, in the old Testament. And, you know, and that's great. I mean, that's a, that's a great work, but, um, you know, for Paul to think that my words, what, what I'm writing here, what, what, um, it is being written as I'm dictating it, that it, this is going to last for all of eternity. This is going to last for all of history. You know, in 2000 years, somebody's going to be looking at this and, you know, they're going to, they're going to break this letter up into 16 different chapters and they're going to have verses in there and they're going to put in punctuation and it's going to be in a ton of different languages and it's going to influence billions and billions and billions of people. I better be really clear about what I'm saying. I don't think that he's thinking that at all. I think he's thinking I need to be really clear about what I'm saying to the church in which I'm writing. And the church in Rome is the one that he's writing to in particular. Now, the church in Rome more than likely was started um, right after Pentecost because you would have had um, Jews that made the pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the, the, the week of feasts, for the celebration, you know, the bread wave offering, all that stuff, and would have experienced what happened at Pentecost. And then they would have went back and told people and people would have believed it. And the church, that, that particular local church would have been established. Now it, it wouldn't be a local church like how we're thinking with, um, you know, we're, we're thinking that it has to have uh, you know, a building and, you know, the, the formal setting. I mean, you're just having groups of believers that are getting together and they are going to synagogue on Saturday, more than likely, um, and and listening and hearing that, and and you know listening to what's going on, and the retelling of of you know the first Pentecost in uh, Exodus nineteen and twenty. Um, they're remembering uh, Numbers, I think it's chapter eleven. They're hearing all of these readings. They, they follow a liturgy, and this is always the benefit of following um, a liturgy and following liturgical structures. You, you know what's coming up, and you, know, you can sort of time when the readings are and, and, and what's going on and what's occurring. And so they're a group of Jewish people that went back and started talking about it, you know? And there are Gentiles there that are listening and becoming converts. And so, you now have these Gentiles that, well, they're not converted to Judaism exactly, because they're more than likely, I, I doubt that they were going to temple services. I mean, maybe they started to. Maybe they started out like, like you know, trying to go to, um, you know, synagogue and sitting in and, and, and listening and being a part of it. That's, that's very plausible. Um, but there was definitely a mix, and they were, they're worshiping on Sunday. And there's this mix of, of, of Jew and Gentile going on. And um, 
it, it was causing problems. There was some kind of problem that was happening in Rome at this time with, with you know, uh, this exact situation because um, the, uh, the governor kicks all the Jews out because there's a lot of trouble forming around them. Um, in a point in Acts, uh, Paul meets some people from Rome, from the Church of Rome. Because they had been, um, you know, exiled by an, by an edict that lasted a, a few years, and so the only people that are left are the Gentile Christians because they um, they're not of, of Jewish descent. Now, was it because um, these Jews who were believers in the Messiah, um, you know, converted Gentiles, and the Gentiles were accompanying them into the synagogue? And maybe the Gentiles were being a little more vocal and saying, yeah, this sounds just like, you know, um, Yeshua, you know, and they, you know, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth and they're talking and the synagogues are probably like, no, what are you talking about? He was, you know, he was nailed to a tree. He was accursed. He was, yeah. What do you do? And, and you could see the problem starting up and then maybe them, you know, arguing with the why I, I, I thought you said we were part of a Jewish religion now, like what's going on and, and all this stuff. So you could start, I mean, you can get the idea that, Hey, there was probably, um, some type of, of infighting that was going on. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, this is just a hypothesis of, of what was occurring. So I, I'm saying all this to say that when Paul's writing to this church in particular, it's already come back together. You know, the, the edict is gone um, and there's Jews and there's Gentiles in it and they're trying to figure out how to get along. There's obviously some, some problems back and forth. And so... I'm make, I want to make the argument that Paul is writing the letter to both Jews and Gentiles. And this is not, um, you know, as, as, as Michael said, this is not the standard popular understanding of how to begin to think about the, the letter to the Romans. It's usually thought of, you know, the, the, the church in Rome, you know, is a homogenous entity that you know accepted this and it's for everyone to understand now i i agree that it's for everyone to understand but the way that paul writes he's really moving between the jewish and the gentile worlds and so we're, we're going to look at verse 18 and when we look at uh, at verse 18 we're actually we're going to look at verse 18 verses 18 through 23 and this then and this gives us our first key that it's like primarily a Jewish audience that this is for, but it's it's to be related to all of humanity, but through the Jewish creation lens. The Theology Pit is a partner-funded ministry. Please consider partnering with us by making a donation at thetheologypit.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page, hit the donate button, and make a contribution to the best Theology Pit podcast on the internet. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 23 right now so we can just, just kind of get our feet wet 
through this, and I'm reading it through the New English Translation of the Bible, the Net Bible, my you know, my, my my favorite translation thus far, except for my own. When I do my own translations, I, I like those a lot too. But the legwork's done for me in the English, so we'll just read it from here. Starting with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Now, I'm going to stop here, and let's let's break this down, because a lot of people hear that, and, and they hear this, you know, the invisible attributes of God. Now, what are invisible attributes? Well, there are things like, like uh, power. You know, power is an invisible attribute. It is not something that you can uh, point to necessarily in a person. It's, it's something that they possess, that they exercise. Um... Margaret Thatcher said being powerful is like being a woman. If you have to tell people you are, then you aren't. And so the same is going when people are reading this, they're looking at this, they're they're looking at verse 20 specifically and saying, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. And people would say, yes, look at the universe. You can look at all of creation. How did that get there? Why is there something rather than nothing is usually the, the basic philosophical question. The first philosophical question that's asked you know, and you know, Paul goes on in this verse is a, and people are without excuse. So because of this, people are without excuse. Now, what tells me, you know, what what there there's there's a couple clues here that that want me to actually go back to the account in Genesis. First, he's talking about. Um, you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. And so, when you start from the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of mankind, um, God revealed from heaven, you know, his, his wrath that's against ungodliness and unrighteous people. You read through Genesis, that's what it's telling you. The entire narrative of, of Genesis is this you know, story of the um, you know, generation, degeneration of mankind, and then looking forward to the regeneration of mankind. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this creation language that's jumping out at me. You know, creation of the world, invisible attributes, all this stuff clearly seen. Because when they were there in the garden, this is clearly understood. People were without excuse. Everybody knew, you know. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. Well, 
if people don't know God, you know, they we, we would say today the people who are atheists or unbelievers, you don't see them walking around giving God glory. And and we would make the argument, it's like, well, they don't even know God. But here it's saying, you know, although they knew God, they totally did, they totally knew him, they did not glorify him. They eventually, you know, they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. They became this way. They were walking with God. This then happened. This is not talking about us who, you know, if, if, if Paul were writing them at, at this time, he would be saying things like, you know, we don't know. You know, our hearts are darkened. And he says that later on when he does get to the present time period, he, you know, makes makes a summary of the psalm says no one searches for god no one looks no no one uh you know uh, goes forth there there is no one that believes like no, nobody does but here he's saying people know god they they're just ignoring him they're being senseless you know their hearts are are darkened in this process this is you know their their thoughts are futile and then you get the verses 22 and 23, and this is really what sets it off. This is what solidifies it in Israel, okay? Because then you move past there, and what happens after the Genesis account is that you move into the Exodus account. And the Exodus narrative, after they are redeemed by God, after they are freed from the bondage in Egypt, and they are taken um, across the Red Sea, you know, they... You know, claim to be wise and they become fools. And why? Because they exchange the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Now, what was the four-footed animal that they were worshiping? Well, the four-footed animal that they were worshiping was the golden calf. And so we would look at that golden calf incident. And some people think that this is Paul referring to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 verse 19 and 20 says, They made an image of a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal idol. They traded their majestic God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, what Gentile, what Roman Gentile Christian w- would pick up on that on that wording on that reference. You know, they made a, a, a calf, a four footed animal. That's that's oddly specific. You know, oddly specific. It, it could be an illusion. You know, we could be. I could be off a little bit on this, but you know, I don't think so, um, because th- that's what's going on in the Exodus account. And because that happened, you know, what what what's the next line? Therefore, God gave them over in their desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they're 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 now they're not worshiping the calf. And remember, this this calf that they, that they were worshiping, they weren't saying that, you know, this is a God. When they were worshiping that calf, they were saying, this is Yahweh. 
This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And that phrase, the God who brought us out of Egypt, is used throughout Scripture to define, to define and describe Yahweh. You know, it, it, he is referred to as we believe in the God who brought us out of Egypt. Um, in, in Jude's letter, in the book of Jude, um, I think it's verse 5, talks about um, Jesus being uh, the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It's a very specific uh, identification. And so when they're worshiping these four-footed animals, when they're, when they're worshiping, you know, this calf, they're directly saying, this is Yahweh. This is who we worship. And their hearts are impure and they're dishonoring themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Now, what's worse is that not only did they worship the creation, but they worshiped a creation of the creation, something that they created. So they were looking to them out themselves. They were looking to themselves to be wise, to be able to say, this is God, this is Yahweh. And it's, it's dishonoring to them in, in, in so many ways. But um, you know, when your heart is impure, your, your, your body's going to follow. You know, your, your body follows what your mind does. Your mind's the one in control. And so then they, they take this next step. And so they're worshiping the creation of their own creation. So in a way, they're worshiping themselves. And for this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and likewise men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here you start to get the crossover. You start to get the crossover because you can go back now and you say, okay, the Israelites were guilty of the four-footed animal thing, but the reptile, the image resembling human beings, who was that? Well, that was the Gentiles. Who they knew at the time, the Egyptians. Who did the Egyptians worship? Well, Pharaoh is a god. Ra is the sun god. You know, you, you look at the Egyptian hieroglyphics that they were very familiar with, you know, and images of birds and reptiles. So it's both Jew and Gentile here. And God gives them over. And what do Gentiles do? And Gentiles at that time, Gentiles would be reading this and they may not pick up on that, but they certainly pick up on the, um, you know, the homosexual relations. Because in, um, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, it was normal for, you know, a man to have, you know, a wife, you know, a concubine or two, and perhaps a young boy. And it's different than what we think about, uh, you know, w with our term with homosexuality. 
because we think about homosexuality as a, a group of people, like an identity factor. You know, they're defined by this, you know, th- this act and, and this type of lifestyle. But um, really the idea of them, uh, of, of homosexuals being a people group wasn't understood that way until um, after World War II. And, you know, it, it was more understood as the act rather than the, um, the inclination. Because the inclination of, you know, our, our sexuality is distorted because of sin anyways. And what Paul is getting here is that not only are we so distorted that we didn't just worship creation, but we worship the creation of our creation. Then we worshiped ourselves basically. And we worship what, what is, what is the, you know, the, the most visible way of showing that we won't worship God who is other, who is something other than ourselves. And we just want to worship ourselves. But, you know, engaging in deep, intimate, relational uh, aspects with a person of the same sex. Not even in the natural way that God created. You know, it's, it's like the ultimate in the visible manifestation of the effect of the fall. Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Please take a moment to rate our podcast and leave a comment about what you like or what you don't like. Each rating and comment helps others discover this show. Don't forget to visit us at thetheologypit.com to make a donation. While on the website, we would appreciate it if you would share these podcasts with your friends and family on social media. Our Facebook page is also titled The Theology Pit. Stop over and give us a like. If you have any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please write to samson at thetheologypit.com. That's samson, spelled S-A-M-S-O-N, at thetheologypit.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's show. Is us worshiping ourselves. We'll see. Like, he eventually gets, I mean, as bad as this is sounding right now, as bad as I'm, I'm, I'm making the sound, you may be thinking, my goodness, you're such a homophobe. Like, what's going on? How can you say, like, this is the worst thing that is you know possible that that, that you could possibly be saying and if, you, if you're thinking that way good because it's going to get worse before it gets better here it's going to continue on this and more on the next theology pit